Hey everyone! The case I'm going to discuss today it spans two countries and it devastated everyone involved in the lives of the victims, especially of course the families involved. It emphasizes a tragic example of how the Canadian child protective system and the Canadian justice system completely failed this family and how the family fought back. This is the story of Andrew Bagby and Zachary Turner. Thanks for joining us. So Andrew Bagby was born on the 25th of September in 1973 in Sunnyvale, California. And there's a documentary about this case. It's called Dear Zachary, A Letter to a Son About His Father. And it's directed and edited and filmed and produced and written and everything all by Andrew's best friend, Kurt Kewen. Have you guys seen this documentary or know anything about this case? Um, yes, I um, saw this documentary about probably a year ago um but it really stuck in my mind so i know a little bit about it but it'd be good to get like a refresh on what happened and stuff yeah i don't really know anything about the case i haven't seen that documentary but i'll probably go check it out after i after we record this okay yeah i remember the first time i saw it too was about a year ago or so it used to be on um like amazon prime i don't think it's there anymore though Anyway, this documentary, it starts out by... We're not sponsored by Amazon Prime. <laughs> oh, okay. So this in this documentary, it starts out by uh, Kurt talking to everyone that Andrew ever knew. And it's really effective, I think, because it just shows how popular and loved this guy was. Everyone who ever met him loved him. And I think that's what makes this documentary so effective is the fact that his best friend was the one that was creating it. And it really, he does really does a good job because it really is really emotional and sad. It shows that Andrew loved to make movies with his friend Kurt um, when they were growing up. And Andrew took up photography and he was in medical school wanting to be a doctor. So this story starts with Andrew getting accepted into Memorial University in Newfoundland to get his medical degree. And there he meets a woman named Shirley Turner. And Shirley is about 12 years older than Andrew when they meet. He is 28 and she's 40. And when they meet, Shirley has already been divorced twice and she has three kids. Andrew's friends say that Shirley really didn't seem like a good match for Andrew. Like she was kind of socially awkward and she made inappropriate comments often and like sexual gestures to Andrew when they were around other people. So it was like really awkward. And in this documentary, it shows kind of a video of her and she's like hiding behind Andrew, like not wanting to talk to the camera. Um, and Andrew was just like so the opposite. He was very social and likable, but Andrew sees something in her and they start dating and it was just mostly casual for the most part. Andrew's ex-fiancee, her name was Dr. Heather Arnold, she said that Shirley would call her often, like randomly, and just talk forever and say really inappropriate and crude things to her about Shirley and Andrew's like intimate relationship. 
almost trying to like rub it in her face. Andrew and Heather were still friends though. Like they were on good terms and it wasn't like there was any bad blood between them. So Shirley was just trying to do something to like make herself feel better, I guess. And she was just being malicious for no reason at all. I guess that's just who she was. Andrew's friends would often tell him that he could do a lot better than Shirley. And Andrew would just say like, no, I really can't. They mentioned that his breakup with his ex-fiancee, Heather, really hit him hard. It devastated him in a way that I guess made him vulnerable going into subsequent relationships after his breakup. Even though Andrew was super popular, he really didn't have a lot of like self-confidence when it came to his appearance. He would often poke fun at himself, just like little jabs here and there. People say that Shirley and Andrew's relationship was more like of a comfort thing for Andrew. Like she was just someone for him to be around while he was in Newfoundland and that it really wouldn't last past his senior year. After he graduated from Memorial University, he moved to New York to do a surgical residency, but he actually really wasn't enjoying it at all. He really disliked what he was doing and Shirley had moved to Iowa, but they were still maintaining like a long distance relationship kind of thing, but they were still casual, nothing really committed. They would just kind of see each other and get together whenever they could. And friends say that this was because Andrew was so miserable with his job that just having somebody that was like making an effort to spend time with him and was willing to do all that traveling to see him was kind of alluring for him. And that's why he continued to stay with and see Shirley. It wasn't because she was such a great person or anything. In July of 2001, Andrew moved to Pennsylvania to start a family practice. So he was done with surgery and he was a lot happier doing this family practice. And it was like a complete total 180 from when he was doing that surgical internship that he was doing previously. He really loved it, and he really didn't want to be with Shirley anymore. He was like happy with his life, so he felt that that part of his life was over. He was attending a friend's wedding, and she called him continuously throughout the night, and he finally just like shuts off his phone and goes about enjoying the party. But when he turns it back on, he has over 30 voicemails from Shirley. Just hit her trying to get a hold of him. And November 3rd of 2001, this is when Andrew just like finally breaks up with Shirley at the airport right before she's about to go back to Iowa, which is a thousand miles away from him. He breaks up with her. He thinks this is the end of it. Um, and he can just kind of close that door on the chapter of his life. So two days after they break up, Andrew gets a knock on the door and guess who it is? It's Shirley. Andrew even said that, quote, it's the psychotic bitch. Shirley had driven over 16 hours to see Andrew right after he had broken up with her, and Dr. Clark Simon, who is one of Andrew's friends and colleagues, recounts the story, and he says that he told Andrew not to meet up with her alone, and Andrew replies, well, what could happen? Andrew told Clark that he would come over to his house afterwards to discuss what went down when he was meeting Shirley, just kind of give him the dirt on what happened, um, and he said that he would be there around 7pm that night after meeting up with her at 6 o'clock p.m. Clark said that he was immediately concerned as soon as Andrew did not show up at his house at 7.30 because Andrew was really punctual. He was the type of guy that would just never be late without letting you know. And he went to look for Andrew's car at like 9 p.m. that night. And when he didn't see it either, he knew that something was very wrong. Andrew doesn't even show up for work the next morning. When they call over to his house, they just get his answering machine. They call his cell phone. It's just the machine again. And sadly... Andrew's colleagues are informed that a body had been found wearing scrubs in a parking lot, and they find out that Andrew had been killed. So Andrew was found the morning of November 6, 2001, behind his car in the parking lot of a Keystone State Park in Derry Township, Pennsylvania. A witness said that they had spotted a Toyota Corolla parked in the parking lot beside an SUV, and those descriptions matched both Andrew and Shirley's cars. 
Andrew was shot five times, including once in the face, once in the back of the head, and in the chest. When his parents went to identify his body, and they saw that it was him, they were, of course, super de- devastated. And his dad is retelling the story of them, like, kissing their son as he lies on the gurney, and tears are getting all over Andrew's face. And they go to wipe off the tears, and one of the plugs that was put into his cheek from, like, the bullet hole fell out. And his parents kind of had to see that up close and personal, just adding more trauma to the situation. So the bullet casings that were found at the scene matched a 22 caliber gun, which was the same type of gun that Shirley had just recently purchased. And the police questioned her right away because Clark, that friend that Andrew was supposed to meet up with, told them that she was in town and that they needed to talk to her. She is speaking to them over the phone, and they ask if she can bring her gun into the station for examination, and although she initially agrees, she eventually tells them that she just, like, can't find it. She doesn't know where it went. She claims that she was home in bed sick on the last day that she talked to Andrew, which she says was Sunday, but she has there's phone records that show that she was making calls throughout the day, and they can clearly see that she was traveling while she was making those calls. Like, the cell phone pings made it super obvious of her entire journey. And it shows that she even logged onto eBay at Andrew's house on his computer on the morning of Monday the 5th. And then her phone records indicate that on the way back, the trail that she took as well. So they literally have, like, her entire journey mapped out. And she even makes a call to Andrew when she gets back to Iowa and leaves him a voice message like, Oh, hey, how are you? I love you. Like, yada, 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 stuff like that. When she gets called out on this huge lie about her whereabouts, she then tells police that she's just trying to remember everything that happened, trying to piece things together because she wasn't expecting to be questioned by police or expected to have to, like, remember this kind of thing um, and remember her day in in detail. Except you'd think, like, a 16-hour drive to confront her ex-boyfriend in a parking lot would stand out to her memory, but I guess it didn't for her. And she also says that she remembers that she gave the gun her gun to Andrew that morning and she said that she saw him put it in his car that's just another change in story and so while police are following up on some further evidence Shirley actually flees back to St. John's Newfoundland she just up and goes and the thing is like Shirley was born in the states but she was raised in Canada so she had dual citizenship to both the U.S. and Canada so she could just travel freely throughout both of them Andrew's friends and family described the services that were held for Andrew, and there was memorials in Newfoundland, there was a memorial in California, in England, in St. Louis, in Latrobe. So Andrew was, like, just so loved, and this documentary really captured that. One of his friends said that... One of his friends said that he himself would be happy if he had one-tenth of the amount of people care half as much about him as they did Andrew. So Shirley was actually charged on December 12, 2001, of first-degree premeditated murder... But on that very same day, she was let out on bail. Despite Shirley being a flight risk, she just paid $75,000 bail and she was let out. And she also had to turn over her passports, sign in once a week at the local police station, promise not to leave Newfoundland, and avoid contact with a list of people. And David and Kathleen Bagby, which were Andrew's parents, were at the top of this list. I just feel like the Canadian justice system is like super lenient sometimes. Like, I mean, this woman is charged with first-degree premeditated murder. And she gets out the same day on bail. What was her occupation again? She was a doctor. Oh, okay. Because I was like, who has just $75,000 just sitting there to pay their bail? But obviously she did. Yeah. Or, I mean, I guess maybe if her friends helped her or her family helped her or something. But Yeah. Um, well, yeah. So she, she met Andrew in medical school. Um, and she actually went all the way through and got her doctor degree, whatever, MD. <laughs> 
So Shirley actually drops a bombshell on everyone when she claims that she's actually four months pregnant with Andrew's baby. And so when the Bagbys find out about this, they drop everything, they quit their jobs, they collect all their life savings, and they move to Newfoundland to try and get custody of their grandson. In July of 2002, so July 18th, Andrew's son, Zachary Andrew Turner, is born in Newfoundland. But Shirley won't let the Bagbys see the baby. Just another vindictive thing that she is doing to their family. They are eventually granted one hour a week to visit Zachary. And then after months of like delays and reschedulings for various reasons, on November 14th, 2002, so this is like over a year since Andrew was murdered, a judge says that it's likely Shirley could be found guilty of first-degree premeditated murder, and she was just ordered back into custody. So she randomly just goes back to jail. The Bagbys, of course, are thrilled to have Zachary for the first time, but in order for them to kind of keep Zachary for this agreement, they had to agree to a phone call once a day from Shirley in jail, and they had to go visit her in jail once a week with the baby, was a two-hour drive for them in the winter in Newfoundland. But the Bagbees did it because they didn't want to lose um, little Zachary. So their happiness really doesn't last long because on January 10th of 2003, Shirley was let out of jail again. And the Bagbees have to give little Zachary back to their mother, this woman who was charged with planning and murdering their son. So how and why she gets let out of jail is actually infuriating. She didn't have any money left for a lawyer, so she actually just writes a letter to the judge and his office responds with instructions for her on how she can write her own appeal to the judge's decision of incarcerating her while she's waiting an order from the Ministry of Justice to surrender her to the states. So she submits that appeal and is let out based on that appeal by Judge Gail Welsh. So this judge told her what to do. She did it and gets out. Like, it's kind of crazy. And the judge that let her out refused to even entertain the prosecutor's claim that Shirley's appeal was frivolous, as multiple legal personnel had read her appeal previously and they refused to represent her. But it's noted that the judge, that this judge Welsh, for whatever reason, was, like, I don't know how to explain it, but she was, like, almost smitten with Shirley because she was a doctor she was very much like, oh, you're smart enough to kind of basically understand what's going on and you'll listen to what I'm saying. She even said to to Shirley, quote, to behave yourself when you get out. Yeah, when she gets out on bail. And she said for her not to flee or hide from the judicial system when she gets out. And she agrees to let her out because she says she's not a threat to the public. She murdered her ex-boyfriend, not a random person. So she's just free to fucking basically go on bail. She said, quote, while her crime was violent, it was specific in nature, end quote. And so Mr. Bagby is like trying to understand this. And he's like, so the judge's reasoning is that even if she is guilty of planning and executing a murder, she should be let out because the only person that she wanted to kill, she already did. So nobody else is in danger. Yeah. So she just gets out on bail and gets her son back. What do you guys think about this situation so far? It's whack. Like, it's crazy. Like, I don't know, when you were describing the circumstances surrounding the, uh, to like the case and the crime, it reminded me very much of the Jody Arias case, uh, like where, you know, her boyfriend broke up with her and then she drives like a super long distance to go confront him. And then he ends up dead with like multiple gunshot wounds. Like, it's very similar to that case. So, and then obviously in the Jody Arias case, like she got life in prison or whatever, like 
how you should if you commit a crime like that. So the fact that she's been able to get out of jail multiple times, just get her son back right away. Like, it's crazy to me that that could even be allowed to happen. My only question is, where do these judges go to school? Because, like, that is just, that's fucking stupid to me. Like, so, she, like, so like her son's not in danger, even though yeah, she like, just killed her, her fa- the son's father in like a very violent way. I don't give a fuck who she killed. She killed somebody. That doesn't make she because she killed her because it was someone specific and not random. Doesn't mean she gets out of jail scot free. Like that's the stupidest yeah. excuse I've ever heard. I oh, know they said she wasn't a danger to the general public because it was very specific. So she's not just going to go kill another random person because she already murdered someone. So but she drove sixteen hours to kill him. I know. So like. So, like, if she gets into another relationship that doesn't end well, is that person's not at risk? Like, obviously, she, what was it about? Was it Andrew specifically or, like, just the fact that she hates being abandoned or broken up with, you know? Or so. son, her son gets older and he leaves home and abandons her? Like, he's not going to go out and kill him? Like I know. Like, she obviously has some sort of issue with, like, abandonment or, like, something going on. But, I don't know. They don't feel that she's a threat, which is super, you know, Oh, she preys on young vulnerable people because at the time he was 28 and she was 40 and divorced twice so well, he, well, he wasn't like su- well he wasn't like super young i mean 12 no years but i mean lot, but... she was 40 years old had three kids and already divorced twice obviously something's wrong with her if people can't stay married to her <laughs> like she well, can't be not necessarily sometimes marriages <laughs> no. just don't work out no, but... person. no but like i'm just saying like this whole podcast is about people killing their family like we see all kinds of people going to jail for spe- the specific thing. Like I don't understand what who these Newfoundland people think they are. But yeah, I know, and it's like <laughs> the it's like the innocent until proven guilty, right? Well, like maybe she actually didn't do it, and she should be let out in jail until she actually is proven guilty, which is like obviously not the case for most of these cases. But everything, yeah. everything points so, to her so directly. And like, you, were, you know, when you in your intro, you were right about how like the child protective services did fail because oh yeah, I'll get into anywhere that else. Mm-hmm anywhere else that child yeah. would have been taken away from yeah, her and not who, be able to go like, back yeah who hands over an infant to someone that's char- like convicted of of killing their father first degree murder yeah to that child's father like it's kind of crazy premeditated and what, like, yeah and that's what the bagby family is just like what the fuck is happening and like the crazy thing is it, like it wasn't just one judge it was like she contacted one the judge that told her she needed to go to jail and that's the one that told her how to write the appeal about his, his own decision. And then it was another judge that, like, granted that appeal. So, I mean, it's crazy. Just a little, like, Newfoundland, like, just, like, hippy-dippy Canada, super lax with their... It's like they it. can make their own rules. It's like, you know, we're the judges. We can just, you know, make up this random thing. If she does this, then that's good. It's good I know. For us. And they make a point in the documentary to be, like, it's because, like, this judge was, like you know swooning over her because she was a doctor like she was very smart and like was put together and obviously was intelligent enough to like listen i guess i don't know it's kind of crazy the whole circumstance but i'm just gonna go you know onto into more about it so like what isn't talked a lot about in this documentary is shirley's history with her ex-husbands and her other three kids shirley's first son was born in 1982 after her and her first husband decided to get married because she was pregnant so Shirley is still in school when she gives birth and decides to continue on with her studies. And her ex-husband is the one that stays home full-time with the baby. Two years later, she has a daughter and she resumes a relationship with an ex-boyfriend. She gets divorced and she marries that former boyfriend and they have a daughter together as well. 
but her and her second husband do separate like a year after the birth of that second daughter. So she has three kids, the son and then two daughters come later. And there's two different husbands. In an article written by Tom Penny on theracketonline.com, it's reported that after Shirley's son was born, so her first kid, this is when her controlling behavior really started to manifest. She completely decides to cut her mother-in-law out of the baby's lives. Doesn't really give a reason, just doesn't want her mother-in-law involved. This article says that she began that affair after her second child was born. Apparently, that affair lasted for like six years, and because Shirley was so manipulative, she was able to pull it off. Her husband, her first husband, was working in the mines, and he worked a lot and didn't get a lot of time off, so Shirley would take the kids, tell him that she was visiting relatives, to dump the kids off the relative's house, and then go be with this other man that she was having an affair with, and eventually ended up marrying. In October of 1993, a man who was a roommate of Shirley's reports her because he is witnessing her abusing her two oldest children. Allegedly, she would hit them with her open hand and with belts for no apparent reason. She would curse and swear at them, and she would sometimes leave the older daughter home by herself all weekend, unsupervised. And he reports his abuse to a therapist, and the two oldest children actually corroborate the witness's claims that yes, they were hit by their mother. The abuse report filed to social services, um, which was backed up by that third party, was backed up by that therapist and also the children themselves. It was closed in January 11th of 1994 and nobody even ever contacted Shirley or see, you know, the legitimacy of it. This was just the first of many systematic failures that kind of enabled Shirley's behavior. Later in 2004, Shirley decided to continue with her education and she just up and moves and doesn't take her kids with her. She returns a year later, somehow still gets full custody of her kids, but continuously says that her kids are just a hindrance to her education, like they're just in the way of her trying to get her education. And eventually they all just go live with their fathers. It's also reported in um, that Racket Online article that she stalked an ex-boyfriend that had moved to Halifax for a job and didn't want to see her anymore, so super similar to Andrew, he moved away and just broke it off with her. She follows this guy, finds out where he lives, and just, like, refuses to leave. He doesn't call the police, and he just gives in, and she actually lives there for months with him, just because she he couldn't get her to leave. That's kind of, like, how crazy she was. In her professional... What's wrong with her? <laughs> she has, like, abandonment issues, and, I, like, obviously, it has to be, like, on her terms. She wants to leave, she'll leave, but, like, you can't cut her out. Like, that's... She's just not gonna have it. Even in her professional life, like, her colleagues saw that violent and controlling side of her. Multiple people like described her as putting on a show whenever she was with patients or whenever she was actually nice. And if there was ever like a complaint against her or someone didn't like what she did or said, that's when her true self came out and she got really violent. And the the doctor who was her supervisor throughout her residency said that he was afraid to be alone with her due to like what she might say or do. But he actually does sign off on her completing her medical residency and she's given a license to practice medicine. So this man that's afraid of her just kind of signs everything just, I guess, to get her out of his hair. Cool. So, I mean, it's like super scary how manipulative this woman is or how manipulative she must have been and intimidating to the point where she really did just get whatever she wanted by intimidating and manipulating people. She was obviously very intelligent in a way because, I mean, she became a doctor and she was able to get away with whatever she wanted. And she really did, basically. 
So despite her like sketchy history, none of this actually is reported to any kind of authority. Really? And it's like some of it was, and I think that will come up a bit later. But so there wasn't like this huge record for the courts to pull up later to see that her, she had this history of, you know, really sketchy, controlling, psychotic behavior. And maybe if that, if there was more of that, if more people had reported this kind of behavior, maybe she wouldn't have gotten out on bail twice after being charged with murder. Back to her being out on bail for the second time, in order for the Bagbees to continue seeing their grandson, they needed to have like a third party person with them. So it wouldn't just be the Bagbees and Zachary. They needed to have another person to accompany them during the visits. And the way things were working out, like Shirley would reschedule at the last minute and then this third party person wouldn't be able to make it. So the Bagbees ended up just having to visit Zachary and Shirley would always have to be there with them most of the time, which they hated because they obviously just like couldn't stand Shirley despite the fact that she was just like a shitty person and they knew that she had killed their son. Can you just imagine that situation? These poor people just having to cope with that, wanting to see their grandson, but the only way they can is to spend time with the person that killed their son. It's like, it's hard to believe. Even while she is out, like Shirley goes back to her controlling ways. She meets a man at a bar in July of 2003 and they only go out twice until he finds out that she was accused of killing her ex-boyfriend. And so, of course, this guy like breaks it off with her. And she calls him and leaves him over 200 messages saying that she's pregnant and that he's super immature and that he needs to just grow up and fucking be a man. It's proven later that she was not pregnant. August 18th, 2003. The Bagbys return home and there's a little note on their door asking them to contact the constable. Friends, this is from the documentary as well. The friends recall watching the news and seeing a picture of Shirley and Zachary on the news and saying that they were missing. And of course, there was a search going on and the police were really specific where they were searching. They said they were searching the beach out in Deception Bay in Newfoundland. And they did find two bodies on the beach, a baby and a woman. And the Bagbees once again had to go and identify the body, and it was little Zachary that they had found on the beach. So what had happened was Shirley had taken some Ativan, which is a brand name for lorazepam, which is used for anxiety disorders and for people that have trouble sleeping. She crushed some of it up and put it in Zachary's food, and it presumably knocked him out. And so with Zachary passed out, strapped to her chest, Shirley walked to the edge of the pier and jumped into the Atlantic Ocean, and it was a murder-suicide. My God, it's crazy. I know. I did not know that that's where this was going at all. Yeah, it's actually super startling that this happens, especially in the documentary, because like you weren't expecting this to happen. It just kind of happens, and it's it's like it's oh, it's so sad when they're talking about this because, um, like David, who's Andrew's father, was saying like while they were both still alive, like he just kept thinking of ways like how am I going to get Zachary away from this woman? He was thinking like he would have to sneak out in the middle of the night and like just kill Shirley and then take Zach Zachary. Like that was the only way that they were able to separate them. He thought that they would need to like take Zachary and just like flee the country flee overseas so that they could be together but that just obviously wasn't a plan that would work out so he had like over and over in his head he was trying to figure out a way to get him away from her because you know the system obviously had failed to do that and he wasn't able to do it in time and this is what happened well knowing the system he could probably kill her get away with it and be out of jail and have have zachary so right like he should have just done it right because then he would have been fine yeah like i would like to know how the like the child protective services feel now that they could have saved this child and they didn't and now he's dead 
Yeah, there was actually, it showed some guy talking about it, and he said they did take every step necessary to, that the justice system would allow them to, and this still happened. Didn't try very hard, obviously. Like, <laughs> I know, try and harder a next lot time. fell through the cracks, and like, people just really were not paying attention to what was actually happening. And it gets a little bit even crazier, like, it comes out later that the first time she got out, it was $65,000 bail, and it was her... Shirley's psychiatrist had actually put up that bail. And then the second time... Yeah, so she didn't actually pay that bail the first time. And the second time... Isn't um, that like a conflict of interest? Like, how can your psychiatrist just pay their, for their client's bail? Oh, yeah, definitely. It didn't come up at the time, but it comes up later where it was like, what the hell? And then, like, the, the second bail, which was $75,000, a bunch of people, like, had to sign this agreement to have her release, but nobody actually had to pay the bail. So nobody paid it and she still got out. So something fucking happened there too, where she was able to get through this without even paying bail and getting out. Like, what the hell is happening, right? This is all in like Newfoundland. I'm not blaming Newfoundland. I'm like, it's just crazy that it happened so close to home, right? Like, like nobody knows how to do their jobs. It's like a series of people failing at their jobs consecutively. Yeah, it, yeah. yeah, it's not just one person slipping up. It's like the whole fucking system slipped up. Like, yeah, like one after the other. It's like somebody slipped up and then like the next person should have caught it. That they slipped up to the next person. Like it just a domino it effect. Actually, it actually creeps me out how manipulative she actually was. Like I how she was able to get away with all of this. She got out of jail without paying bail somehow. You always like, see like, like like serial killer movies and stuff like that. And how like the character is so manipulative. You never think, oh, nobody in real life can be like that. But like there are people like that and it like really creeps me out yeah she was smart and like an evil smart which is like the scariest part like the yeah. scariest yeah and like she must have known she had that power of like if i just intimidate these people enough if i frighten them enough they will give me what i want and, and that's not, all i need but it's not that so though, she like, obviously knew she had that power over people yeah like her kids like her older kids like tried to get away from the situation and try to like pin her to their abuse and she still got away with it so she's thinking i can get away with anything i got away with murder i got away with this like what else can i get away with really like nobody really stopped her from anything yeah she definitely had issues with rejection and like it showed in that documentary that like little zachary preferred the grandmother so kathleen over her it would show him like they'd be at parties and they'd be like go to your mom go to to your mom and he would like cry and run back to her like he didn't want to be with their mom at all or his mom at all and like everyone just said well this is because she was like a fake mom she would just put on a show in front of everybody but she actually like didn't give a shit and zachary knew that right like but that pissed her off that zach zachary didn't love her that way i think that's probably the part of her decision was like well you rejected me so now you're coming down with me too i was just gonna say that like if i can't have you nobody can type thing she really had like like something against these people right like she there's no way she's gonna let them be happy after this, right? So it was, yeah, it's just really sad. So before, even before Zachary's death, Kathleen and David Bagby's lawyer went to one of the higher ups in the Child Protective Services to let them know that they were concerned about Zachary because his mother was out on bail and was charged with murder, but nothing happened. Like nobody reported anything, nobody looked into it further. And when the Bagbys were looking after Zachary while Shirley was in jail, no one even came to visit them to see if they were good people, to see if that Zachary should be released to them. No one asked for any documentation or le- the letters of reference that they had from friends um, and employees, the people that had written these letters for them. Um, they just handed Zachary over to them. Like, they could have been anybody. They could have been worse people than Shirley. And nobody checked on that. So that's, like, another failure. Even though these were amazing people, like, nobody knew that, like, t- really knew that in the system. 
and somehow this baby just went with them. It's kind of crazy. Because their job to do welfare checks on? Well, yeah, it's probably part of their job. Maybe they don't do it every single time. But I don't know. You think, like, just in this situation where the mother's a murderer, father's dead, like, I don't know, check out the people that the baby's going to, you'd think? Mm -hmm. So that's kind of crazy. Anyway, yeah, so they just handed Zachary over to them, which, of course, worked out okay in this case because they were loving grandparents. Eight people actually had restraining orders against Shirley, and Shirley reportedly had attempted suicide on the porch of one of her boyfriends that she had before Andrew. And that guy actually did call police about it. And while in jail, Shirley was put on suicide watch. She needed to be checked on every 15 minutes. She was very disruptive and she even threatened to stab another inmate with a fork. But she was still let out on bail the second time. The judge said that there was no indication of a psychological disorder that would give concern about potential harm to the public generally. It's just crazy that all this went down. And she was able to get out and kill herself and her kid. And now the Bagbees, they've become like child protective advocates to make sure that this doesn't ever happen again. The psychiatrist that put up Shirley's bail was convicted of professional misconduct. Well, there was a report that came out in October 4th of 2006 um, that said that the child protection system failed Zachary. There was a significant lack of judgment that led to his death. And there was 58 recommendations that were provided. They claimed to create a policy that was specific to children whose parents were charged with a violent crime. They couldn't answer, though, really why Shirley was let out on bail. Like, they couldn't figure out why that had actually happened. And so Andrew's parents are being, like, advocates to try and change the laws, like, child protection laws in Canada. And they give press conferences, and they've started foundations. They've started, um, like, scholarships in Andrew's name at the Memorial University so they're really trying to change things. And it's sad that things like this have to happen before the laws change. And that's why we have like Miranda rights and Brady violations. Like those are people that really shitty things happen to that made the laws change. And this is just one of those cases, I guess. But it's just sad that stuff like this has to happen before change happens. Yeah, like it's great for those people that, you know, this won't happen to as a result of that. But, you know, it's a little too little too late for Zachary, unfortunately. Yeah, it's really sad. In the documentary... It showed, like, um, he was cremated and they, like, traveled around and scattered his ashes everywhere. I think there was, like, a few places, one or two places that they had, there were two or three places that they had scattered Andrew's ashes and they put his in the exact same spot so that they could finally be together, I guess. It's just sad that Andrew never got to meet him either, right? Like, he died before he was even born. And then, and, yeah, if you can watch this documentary, it's just, like, people talking constantly about how much they loved Andrew when they were so excited to, like, meet Zach and grow up and talk about his father with him, and then that never happened either. So it's just, it is really sad. It's a really emotional documentary. Yeah, I watched it, and I cried the whole, like, from the beginning to the end. I know. What's the documentary called? It's called Dear Zachary, A Letter to a Son About His Father. Grab some tissues. <laughs> It's super sad, like, f- literally from the beginning to the end, like, I cried, like, nonstop. Yeah, I think what makes it the most sad is because, like, you aren't expecting, like, Zachary to die. Like, that's kind of, like, a kicker at the end, because it was, the, the documentary, like, Kurt started making the documentary when Andrew died, and, like, Zachary's in the documentary, right? Because it's trying, it's, it's made for Zachary to show him what his father was like and how much he was loved. And then, kind of in the middle of this, he dies, too. So, it, but, and you're just like, holy fuck, like... So it, it really hits you hard when that happens. Was there anything like specific that happened like the night that that happened for Shirley? Like, was there a specific moment where she just snapped and decided or was this something she was planning for a long time? 
I don't know, it really doesn't say much about it. Like, th they do show in the documentary, like, she, Shirley was talking, I don't know if it was on the phone or in person with them, but she was like, you know, like, if you guys, you know, took Zachary for a little bit, like, I wouldn't be worried if you guys disappeared for a couple of days. And then she was like, would you be worried if I took him and disappeared for a couple of days? Like, she said that to them, which maybe didn't stand out at the time, because she was always saying weird stuff like, like that, I guess. But yeah, that was just one thing that stood out. And then... I don't even think they were worried. Like, they weren't being like, oh, where are they? They just got a note saying that they're missing, and then they found them, so. This might be a yeah. little far-fetched, but, but I mean, there was tons of warning signs before that, right? Yeah, um, and I was gonna say, like, I wonder if she, like, manipulated him in having a child. Because she was so psychotic. You know what I mean? Like, sometimes people manipulate other people, like. But it doesn't seem like she, like, wanted kids or cared about kids at all. They were just like, a hindrance yes, to yeah. her, so. So it seemed like she probably just got pregnant and was like, oh shit, but I don't know. Yeah, and then she just used she just used the kid to like even hurt the grandparents even more, right? Like trying to keep him away from them while she was out of jail the whole time. Just like making all making them jump through hoops basically. And they did they did everything she said. It's just sad that like the grandparents were trying to think of ways to like get him away from her legally right because like the system was just completely failing them the whole time and they couldn't do it and then it was just too late it's crazy it's a she really just crazy like an evil it is crazy she just looks like an evil spiteful woman like she just for no reason she just wanted to keep zachary away from his grandparents just for just for what like just because she wants to make them miserable like that's her joy it's just making them miserable yeah i think it really was and she was like super just like a selfish person her whole life and yeah, and I think she just because, you know, Zachary was kind of rejecting her and wanting the grandparents more than her, she couldn't have that, right? Because, like, Andrew rejected her, broke up with her, so he had to go, right? And then little Zachary knew that she was a shitty mother as well, and she, he had to go too. So it's super sad. It's like she's controlling too. It's like, no, you're going to do things, like, it's going to be on my terms. If we break up, it's going to be on my terms. It's going to be how I want it to be. And if someone, like, breaks up with her, almost, then she just can't like, handle it. Yeah, and it's like, it's also kind of selfish of her to take her own life because it's like, you know what I mean though? Like, I mean, it's sad that she had to take Zachary with him, but like, she kind of like, I don't know. Well, yeah, she had like, she had three other kids that were alive that now, yeah. regardless of how she, like, they didn't have a mother anymore, right? Like, yeah. so that's... So yeah. like, she abandoned them type thing and she didn't want to be abandoned. Yeah, but... Selfish either way. Yeah, she clearly had signs of, like, mental health issues that were ongoing that nobody... And nobody saw that? I guess the it was judge just, like... Said, oh. I don't know. Maybe because it was across, like, two countries, right? Like, she was, like, a citizen of the U.S. and Canada. And maybe just, like, somewhere along the lines, like, the translation just got crossed. Like, they looked up... She has no record in Canada or something. All this shitty stuff happened in the States. So it was like, okay, she's fine or something. I don't know. I don't know how everything got missed along the way. Just like no communication. It's just like one, like one yeah. agency didn't communicate with the other and like they just never talked to each other. And um, right, yeah. she fell through the cracks or she obviously needed severe like mental health treatment, I think, obviously. She never received it. And then Andrew, Andrew and Zachary had to pay the price. Really yeah, sad. she definitely had like separation anxiety, anxiety or something, right? Or like abandonment issues. Like I've said a million times already. Andrew abandoned her. She was pissed. I feel like like how many people have gone through the system like this and like have like they just have failed these people. Like I'm I'm obviously assuming it's a lot better now. 
which I hope is a lot better now, but like how many people did it take to fall through the system like that before things actually changed? I don't even know if things are better now though. Like there's probably so many cases of people falling through the cracks and maybe not to this extreme where like they commit murder and commit suicide and stuff like that, but it's probably like smaller incidents where people just fall through the cracks, don't get treatment they need and just worse for everyone involved. So it's probably not an unlikely or an uncommon scenario. Well, yeah, and you always see or you used to see that, like, the courts would really favor the mother in these kind of situations. Like, the kids being with the mother is, like, best case scenario regardless, right? The kids need their mom regardless of what what has happened. So it's, like, it's almost that the mom's favored in these kinds of situations. And I think, like, it was a mother. She was a doctor, right? So it was, like, she was a smart, like, in her 40s woman. So, you know, she's fine. Everything's fine. It's crazy. I need, to, I need to watch that documentary because now I'm really intrigued. Yeah, it's sad. And just an example of how the system really failed this family completely. And, you know, kind of how in they're fighting, fighting back. In it, every it, possible yeah, way. Yeah, it wasn't just like the child protective system. It was like the justice system as well. Like they, putting them together was just like this deadly concoction for this family. So it's super sad. And hopefully their advocacy from the Bagbees is making a difference. I'm sure it has. And I'm wondering like if any laws have actually been changed. They're definitely doing good, regardless. So, yeah, that's the end of that. Sad. Yeah, so thanks for joining us. You can reach us at Facebook on uh, Crime Family Podcast, Instagram at Crime Family Podcast, and on Twitter at Crime Family Pod 1. We also have an email address, which is crimefamilypodcast at gmail.com. So send us any case ideas, any tips, any feedback, and make sure to drink lots of water, folks. See you next time. See you next week. Bye.